for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. All right, happy almost Christmas. You have... Like another week to do all your Christmas shopping because Amazon and a grace is again a gift from God. You know what I'm talking about? Two-day prime everybody. It's beautiful. We have been in a series that we started last week called The Awe of Advent. And, And here's what we're doing so often. As we get older and as we celebrate Christmas year after year after year, if we're new to the faith, it might be the first time we've heard these stories. If we're not new to the faith. We've probably heard it before. Like Andy just prayed about it. He's heard this story a lot in his 34 years of being on this earth. The, the story of God coming near. And, and the problem with hearing stories time after time after time is sometimes they lose their impact. They lose, they lose their power because we're so used to them. And so when we open the stories of the scripture, this, the Advent stories, the coming of Christ is, is really one of those moments that just because we've heard it 72 times doesn't mean it's 72 times less powerful. It is an awe-inspiring moment when God draws near to his creation. And so what we're trying to do as we build up to Christmas is recapture that sense of awe of literally the creator stepping down from creation into our mess to fix it. Last week, we looked at at the awe of humility. And we talked about how the awe of humility was really amazing. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks through who Jesus was and what he did. Jesus, who is God, only knew heaven. That's all he ever knew. It's all he ever knew from the beginning of the beginning until he decided to leave the perfection of heaven. Because if there's one thing we can agree on, whether you believe in Jesus or not, no matter what faith background you come from, is heaven is always used to describe a place better than earth. Heaven is the best of what you think the best of is. Jesus left that and came here to walk in our stuff so that we might get to go be with him in heaven one day. That's a beautiful and humbling reality. And what we talked about when we talk about awe is that every time we look into something that's awe-inspiring, it elicits in us something. It brings a feeling or a response. We looked at a couple examples last week. I mean, one we talked about that's one of my favorites because I remember when and where I was when it happened. If you ever go to the Grand Canyon and you ever see what that is, it's an awe-inspiring moment unless you have a massive pride problem and you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the rim and you look and you cannot help by the awe of the moment but to feel small in comparison. And so when we looked at the humility of Jesus, of leaving heaven, coming to earth, what you see is the awe, the awe of humility always, always brings presence. It did for Jesus and it does for us. That when we humble ourselves and walk in ways of humility, it always will lend to us being present for those around us. As we focus on the awe of humility, we can't help but find ourselves present with the people who need us. That's what Jesus did for us. And today we're going to look at the awe of faithfulness. We're going to look at the story you might have heard, might not have. It's a story of of a guy named Zacharias, and um, it's kind of his story of what happened when his firstborn son was born. So to do that, I'm going to start with this story, and I cleared it with my wife because I thought it was important that I do that so I could go home today. When my kid was born, let's start there, okay? Um, I love that people come sometimes to me, and they try and look at my daughter, and they try and look at me and see who my kid looks like. You probably get that a lot or got that a lot. I think they look more like, and sometimes people will look at my kid and look at me and say, Charlie, I'm I'm sorry, but I think she looks more like your wife. And I want to look at him and say, why are you apologizing? What do you think of my wife? I chose her for a reason. And I wish I could say it was character, but a lot of it was looks. I think that's a compliment, not a negative, right? And so when we were talking about our kid and what we wanted our kid to look like, we talked about a lot of things. Like, I want her to have your ears and your eyes. And most of us, I want her just to look like my wife, you know? Um, And we got together and we both agreed that if there was something she could take from me, it might be this blessing of my olive complexion because my wife, my wife is, is, is pretty, just pretty pale. The son does not love her, right? The son loves me and we're outdoorsy people. And so we said, man, I kind of want Charlie's complexion and Sarah's everything, you know? And so we're in the delivery room and the kid, I see the kid for the very first time and I'm not kidding. There are words that you should say when your kids are born and then there's what I said in that moment. I looked at my wife and I said, dang it, she has your complexion, <laughs> 
Not a good start to this parenting thing. And I say that to say this. What we read today in Luke is literally the first words that Zacharias speaks when he meets his kid. And it was way better than mine. So good that it's been given a name passed down for a couple thousand years. It's called the Benedictus, if you want to get theological with it. It's found in Luke 1, 67 to 79. That's where we're primarily going to be. And it was good, and you knew it was good from the get-go because it starts like this. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That is a better go than what I chose to do. And the nurses looked at me like I need to leave, leave right now, you know? Um, But really, it's a beautiful response to him having a kid. And what I want to do as we get into our text is look at his response to having a kid to look at what that what that did inside of him as he'd been praying for one for a long time. And as God showed up and gave he and his wife a kid, what that inspired in him as he stared into the awe of God's faithfulness. But before we do that, we're going to start like we always do on Sunday mornings. We're going to just start off by recognizing that we have two goals at Crossroads. We want to know God this morning. That is a primary goal of us waking up and coming in here. We want to know God. And the only way we know God is one of the only ways we know, we know God is we open the scripture. Crossroads, middle name, Bible church. We believe that the Bible paints for us a picture of God's character that we can't find anywhere else. And so we open it and we study it and we marvel at the character of the God that we think is worthy of worship. But if we limit our understanding of knowledge just to answers and questions and Bible studies, we don't fully appreciate what true knowledge is because true knowledge always leads to influence. The more you know God, the more God's ways influence our ways. And so we want to know God and experience God this morning because we don't believe that we're here by mistake. We believe that if we're here, the Spirit of God is going to do something in our souls this morning so that we leave this place more in love with the God that we worship. So we're going to take a minute or two and, and we're going to pray for our morning. We're going to get our hearts right. I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that you just say a silent prayer that the Holy Spirit might do some work in your spirit this morning. It's good for you. I'm going to ask that you pray for me this morning as we uh, kick in the story of Zechariah. So join me. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful just to gather here on Sundays, like always, that we can take time out of our busy lives and a busy season of our lives around Christmas, and and we can recognize that, that you're worth it, that you're worth stopping down for and remembering some stories or learning about some stories around the Christmas season. As we engage with the scripture this morning, I pray, Spirit, that you do a work in our people, in us, that we might fall more in love with the God of the Bible, with Jesus, this morning as we read the story. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that you say a a silent prayer to yourself and just ask that the Holy Spirit do work in your spirit this morning. I'd also ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job, accurately paint the picture of the character of God that we see on the, on the canvas of the pages of Scripture. You pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. We're in it together. If you've got a Bible, our text today is the last part of Luke 1, verse 67 to verse 79 and 80, but we're going to be bouncing back and forth between another portion of text. So this is, this is Zechariah's response to the birth of his kid, but, but the story leading up to this is found in verses 5 to about 24 in the first chapter. And so what I want to do is look at how God showed up in his life and really bounce back and forth between the story of Zechariah and his response, his prayer, his praise after his son is born so we can get a complete understanding of what the awe of God's faithfulness brought into his life. And, and hopefully it makes sense when we're done and we're not all too confused. If we are, you can go home and read for yourselves. It'll be just as good, all right? So we're going to start in um, the beginning. You can put a bookmark in verses 67 through 79. We'll have things on the screen for you. But in order to, to understand the tension in our text, or, or, or what's going on, and, and why these people want a kid, you've got to understand the culture, and you've got to understand the couple. And so you've got a couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 1, it's describing them. It says, they were this couple. They were both righteous. 
in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. Now, now we got to understand what it means when it says that, just so you don't think these people are perfect people. I'm not a perfect person. I can't relate. When it says blamelessly there, it doesn't mean in any way they were perfect. The word literally means that they tried to correct their imperfections quickly. It means that when they recognized they were walking out of step with God's rhythm and ways, that they confessed and said, let's make a change because I want to walk in the ways of God. That's what it means when it says blamelessly. They tried the best they could, like most of us do. It doesn't mean they were perfect. What you have to understand about the first century world and the Israelites is when you were righteous, they expected a couple things. When you were righteous, they expected not just your life to go well spiritually, but they they expected physical blessings from that righteousness. That's the covenant they signed with God way back in the day on Sinai, that God said, I'm going to be your people, and if you live in my ways, I'm going to give you good things because you're living into the best of what I want for my creation. And so this couple, admittedly so, was righteous, not just before other people or in their own eyes. They were righteous before God. They lived out the ways of God and should expect the blessings that come from that. But here's attention. It's really hard to live into and live out the ways of God well and then not reap the rewards from doing that. And that sometimes is a hard part in our lives. And so the next verse says from this couple, they lived out the ways of the Lord blamelessly, but they did not have a child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both very old. Two things are really negative there. One, they didn't have a kid. And then two, they were very old, which means that it wasn't going to change. They weren't 22 and they're like, well, we'll get them next go around, you know? This was, we don't have a kid and we never will kind of situation. And you got to understand not having a kid in that context. So there's a different society than ours. We're an individualistic society, and that's not good or bad. It's just what it is. We feel like we can make our own decisions for our life, and that individualism presents itself, and you pick your wife, and you pick your college, and you pick your jobs. That never would have been the case in a first-century, culture-centered world. There's a corporate mentality, not an individualistic one. So they picked your job, and they picked your wife, and they picked your school for you because the better good was the good of everybody, not just me. And so when you didn't have a kid, you let everybody, everybody else down because your people could no longer go forward. So it wasn't just a conversation that they didn't want kids, but they did. See, the problem with being barren in the first century world is that people thought that, A, God cursed you because he wasn't giving you good things. And it was a complete hopelessness for your family to come because your family stopped with you. And in a corporate society, that was the worst bad. And so... When it says that she was barren, you've got to understand what that brings with it. And, and it's different than now when people choose all the time not to have kids. And, and that's fantastic. It's a choice that you can make because you want to, you know, I don't know, retire early or have something that I've heard of called disposable income. Good for you. I'll celebrate that with you, you know? But in that world, it wasn't a celebration. It was a curse. One commentator went as far as to say, I love this quote, barrenness in the ancient texts symbolized hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourselves, for your family, or for your people. It wasn't just your problem. It was an our problem. You let down your friends and your family and your neighbors and your people and your country. Because kids were good. That's why the psalmist writes in 127, children are a gift from the Lord. They're a reward from him. It's how their people grew. It's how their country remained secure. It's how they could harvest all the crops and feed people. And so we come into the story of this couple that was righteous and blameless but didn't have kids and we're past the point where that could happen. It's hopeless. And that'd be bad enough. That'd be bad enough for any couple. But you take it a step farther. And this wasn't just any couple. Zacharias was a priest. It says in verse 5, during the reign of King Herod, there lived a priest named Zechariah who, in verse 7, was a descendant of Aaron. So not only was it seen as a curse from God if you didn't have kids, but imagine how that curse is magnified in weight of shame if you actually worked for God. And not that he just worked for God, <laughs> but he was from the best line of God workers. Aaron was, was the stereotype of what they want their priest to be. He was the first one. He was the brother of Moses. He was a priest from the best line of priests, and he was kidless, and that had to be hard for them to live with every single day. I've seen friends and family members struggle with not being able to have a kid in this culture and they pray and they pray and they pray and there's no answer and there's no answer and there's no answer and it's heartbreaking for us imagine what it must have been like for them everywhere they went they had that banner around their neck and I wish I could stop there but 
the silence of God just kind of grows and grows their doubts because at this point, if you peel back to the history of not just their individual family, but of the people as a whole, nationally, God hadn't shown up in a really long time. A really long time. Between the last verse in the Old Testament and the first verse in the New Testament, there's about 400 years where God doesn't really do anything. 400 years where not a prophet sprung up. 400 years where they tried to beat back their oppressors in Greece and Rome and every time it failed. 400 years where they tried to rebuild temples and rebuild all the things that symbolized what they thought God was and it always failed. 400 years where they cried out to God and they had no relief. The hard part about silence is that when we're in the middle of the silence and and you not only don't know what experiencing God or hearing from God looks like, but your parents don't know and your grandparents don't know and nobody that you know alive can tell you what it's like to experience God in that way, the hard part of that is over time that silence turns into doubt. Will God ever show up again? Did he really ever show up in the first place? Has he left and is he coming back? It's the tension of our text. How do you, as a priest remain faithful to a God who you think has left you, who is silent. And and that's a tension that I ask all the time. I ask it all the time when I see bad things happen in our world. Where is God and why won't he deliver? They're wanting good things. They're wanting kids. They're not asking for a million dollars. It's not selfish. What you have in this story is a priest doing his job. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it says he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the holy place of the Lord and burn incense. And when it says that he was chosen by lot, just to fill out the narrative of Zacharias a little bit, there was probably, there was 24 priesthood, different groupings of priesthoods in the first century, probably about 18,000 of them. And, and this was a job that one person did um, every day and they would go into what was called the holy place, which was next to the holy of holies, which is where they felt the presence of God resided. There was three things in there. There was a table, um, there was a lamp, and there was an altar, and, and you'd take coals from the outer court into the holy place to burn incense. You got to do this once in your whole entire, probably priestly career. So just to paint the picture correctly, this was probably the best day of his professional life, and what they're paying it as is one of the worst times in his personal life. It's funny how those things line up like that sometimes. And so he gets, he's chosen by lot, he gets to go into this place and do this job that he's waited to do for his entire life, the the capstone of his priestiness, if you will. And what's really, in some ways, interesting about our text here is, and we don't have time to get into it as much, is it says that they cast lots to figure out who would go, and that was the way in the Old Testament they felt like God spoke. And so we have this really interesting interplay or juxtaposition saying that, hey, even when God is silent, he's still speaking. Even when God is silent, he's still working. Even when God seems like he's not faithful, he is faithful. So this brings us to our moment when Zacharias realizes that God hasn't gone anywhere. So in verse 12, I'll read a little bit. He's in this holy place. There's three things. You go in one time, probably in a lifetime. By the way, if you did it the wrong way, you died. (laughs) Consequences are, you know, up there a bit. You can read stories in the Old Testament. If you're a priest and you did things in the wrong order or the wrong way, or you didn't show respect for the place that you were, literally the presence of God struck you dead. So no pressure. Zacharias goes in, and in verse 12, he says, an angel appeared, and he was visibly shaken when he saw the angel. He was seized with fear. No kidding. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll name him John. The joy and gladness will come to you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. So what happens here is this tension of God not showing up, this tension of I don't know where God is, this tension of he's been silent for such a long time and in an unexpected place and an unexpected time to an unexpected person, God says, I'm gonna remind everybody that I'm faithful. And he shows up to this old man doing his job and he says, I'm gonna give you a son. It's a beautiful reminder that even though we don't see it, God's been faithful and that he's got a plan that changes and deepens and widens our perspective of all the expectations we put on what God looks like and what, where we want, when we want, and how we want God to show up. And so that sparks in Zechariah this prayer of praise 10 months later, nine months later, when John is born. Go back to the end of chapter one. So he says that you will be given a son 
And when that actually happened about nine months later, he is absolutely thrilled. And so he says, like we just read, the Holy Spirit took control of me and I'm going to prophesy, which means under the control of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you what God is like in a way that has not been said before. And he starts off by saying in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has come to help and he has redeemed his people. For he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And what Zechariah is going to do here is juxtapose God's been not faithful or God's been silent to let me tell you about the faithfulness and the power of God's deliverance in this moment. Now that I see it, I can touch it, I can feel it, I can hear it cry, you know? And so he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation. He's talking about the depth or the power of the God that comes to deliver. But what's interesting is he kind of talks in his language about how it happens. So the first part of that in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has come to help and has redeemed his people. That word there, come to help, is, is one word in the Greek. And, and it literally means to draw near. It carries with it the idea of a personal invitation. It, it literally means that God just didn't send a Christmas card with a good family photo and said, all's good, I'm working on it. He actually stepped into the space of the mess. That's what the incarnation is. It's a personal verb that means I didn't just fix it from afar. I fixed it next to you, you know? We, we see this language all throughout the Bible because that's who our God is. And if you want to get a little deeper, this 400 years of silence was there for a reason. Oftentimes in the biblical narrative, what will happen is they will, they will look at accounts and they will explain them in a way that's been explained before to give validity to the God working. And, and God does this as well. So what's happening, if you're a good Jewish scholar, in the first part of the Luke narrative and the Matthew narrative especially, is he's trying to paint a picture of something that's happened before, a, a time and place when the people have been delivered before. When there's been 400 years of silence and God steps in with a person to deliver. And the last time that happened was one of the high points of Israel's history. It's when Israel beat back the most powerful nation in the world in Egypt. And Charlton Heston delivered his people and led them to Sinai. Okay? You're talking about the story of Israel, right? So there's 400 years of silence. Then Moses shows up and says, God says in verse three of, uh, chapter 3 of Exodus, I've, I've seen the affliction of my people. You're going to go and deliver them. We have this verse in chapter four, when he goes to his people, it says, when they heard that the Lord had attended to the Israelites and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down close to the ground. So when it says that he had um, attended to the Israelites, what he means is that he had shown up for them. So the only response of a God that personally shows up and steps into our misery to pull us out of his worship, because he doesn't have to. And so it's the idea that they saw that their God was a personal God when they felt like God wasn't very faithful or personal and they worshiped God. Jesus uses the same language in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, let me tell you what my kingdom looks like. He's talking about the kingdom. And he says, there's some markers what my kingdom's gonna be. And he's running down this list of, you guys weren't here when I did this and when I did this and when I did this. And he says in verse um, 36, I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. That word visit is the same one we're dealing with here. The root of it is. And what he literally means is I was in prison and you drew, you didn't send me a card. You didn't write me a letter. You drew near. And the purpose of this is just to remember and recognize that the way that God delivers, the way that he's always delivered is personally. He steps into our mess. Because here's what happens when God is silent, when we feel like God hasn't been faithful, we feel like God is far from us and wants nothing to do with us and despises us or scorns us or hates us, and we forget that the God that loves us draws near and is personal because there's no way that you can say, I really love somebody, and you don't draw near to people when they need people to draw near to them. This last week was um, just a really emotional week around here. Uh, Someone staff lost a son and, and... it takes its toll on us all, you know, and we had the service um, on Friday night, and it was amazing. And let me tell you something, man. I am, I am so incredibly proud of our church. I can't say how I am so incredibly proud of our church in those moments. We have no answers. <laughs> we faithfully want God to show up. And I can tell you, I saw Crossroads. I saw this church show up magnificently in the middle of these people's pain. They don't need to eat for a year and a half, okay, because Christians show love through food, all right? 
But so many people knocked on their door and gave them hugs and 400 and some odd people showed up to the funeral. It was a beautiful expression of what Jesus did when he drew near to us as we draw near into the misery of others so that we might remind people when it seems like God isn't faithful that he is. Stare at that all. Marvel in the faithfulness of God. And we showed up and hopefully, hopefully through handshakes and hugs, we convinced people that God is near because this is how God delivers. He shows up in the middle of our spaces in places when we least expect him to and says, I didn't go anywhere. I've heard and I love and I'm fixing. And so the first thing that Zacharias talks about when he's talking about the deliverance of God, the faithfulness of God is that literally it's personal. And then he goes on to say in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. (laughs) This is language we don't use anymore. When you want to compliment somebody, you don't call them a horn of salvation, right? I just wouldn't advise that. And it's because how we live now is different than how they lived then. And, And back in the day when something had a horn, it was dangerous. Now we have guns. I was talking to somebody on staff this week and they said, I think they mentioned that it was a Christmas party for a small company. I've heard this happening with bachelor parties, but she said, we went up in this helicopter and, and, and we had these automatic weapons and they flew us over these large swaths of wild boar and we just video gamed them. You know what I'm talking about? We just started firing because there's a large problem with them and it's okay to kill them and that's an ethical question you gotta deal with. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm simply saying we're not afraid of wild boar anymore, you know? Back in the first century world, if something had a horn or tusks, it could and might and would kill you. You were afraid of it. That was a source of power. For example, when Israel's taken out of Egypt, God promises some land, and they finally get to this land. And before they go off into the land, each tribe out of the 12 gets a blessing. Like, this is what I want for you in this capstone moment of what God has given you. And to the tribe of Joseph, this is the blessing that was given. May the firstborn of his bull bring him honor. And may, his ho- and may his horns be those of a wild ox. With them may he gore all peoples, all the far reaches of the earth. Try saying that over a college graduate, you know? Like they're leaving Marcus. May your horns be sharp and swift, and may they gore the college freshmen attack. That's just not how we talk anymore, right? Because we don't think horns are that impressive because we have weapons, In the first century world, when you said something was a horn of something, it was a powerful, offensive weapon to rip apart darkness or threats. That's why in the Psalms it says that Jesus, that that our salvation is, um, is a horn. It's a refuge. And so when he says it's a horn of salvation, he's saying, hey, one, that God's faithfulness and his deliverance is personal, but two, it is incredibly powerful. And he expounds on that by how powerful it is in verse 68. He said, because the Lord God of Israel has come to help, he has redeemed his people. That's a past tense verb. This kid is eight days old. John is eight. Do you know what eight-day-olds do? Nothing. They sit there and they fall into sleep comas and then eat some more and fall into sleep comas and do some other things that we're not going to talk about because it's gross, okay? Eight-year-olds don't do anything. He's got an eight-day-old sitting alongside of him and he's saying God has already redeemed us all. It's this beautiful depiction of, do you wonder how powerful the redemption of God is? It's already completed in my eyes because he's that powerful. I'm a football guy. I like football a lot. There's a couple more weeks left in the season, so I'm going to get as many um, stories out of it as I can. Uh, I'm a UT fan. And there's a story I just remember in my head from back in 2005 when they won the national title. They were supposed to or actually get there. And they had a guy named Vince Young who was the best player in college football. And they were playing Oklahoma State. They always struggled with Oklahoma State for some reason. I don't know why. And they were playing in Stillwater, and they were down by 21 points at halftime. And I'm, you know, I'm a fan, so I'm freaking out watching the game, thinking this is the end of it. I'm kind of a pessimistic fan because I'm a Cowboys fan, so I think everything's going to fall apart all the time. And because it does. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, anyway, so, so they're running into halftime, and their coach is named Mac Brown, and they catch Mac Brown running into halftime, and he tries to pretend to be excited for this little reporter's question when his team's losing by 21 and they're the second-ranked team in the country to a not-ranked team in Oklahoma State. And he says, hey, are you are you a little afraid about this game right now? And he goes, no. And he literally laughed and said, no. And they said, how can you be so confident? He said, because we have Vince Young. And he ran away, right? And that was it. The first play of the second half, Vince Young ran for 80 yards and a touchdown brought us back and we won by I don't know how many points, right? 
It's that idea that literally I believed Mac Brown when he said, I have all the confidence in the world, and just because we're not ahead now, we will win. Why? Because of this guy's ability. He's looking at the faithfulness of God, and as he's blown away by God's faithfulness, looking at his eight-day-old son, he says, this is the God that I serve. Not that one day he will, but it's so powerful that I'm going to use a past tense and say that he has redeemed his people. So he's saying that God's deliverance, because he's faithful, is personal, it is powerful, and then he describes it in one other way in a couple different places. He says, it's all that you want it to be. Verse 73, he says, the oath that he swore to Abraham, so he's gonna talk about in verse 72, he's done this to show mercy to our ancestors. He brings in all the history of Israel, and then verse 73, he swore an oath to our ancestor Abraham. In verse 70, he said he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What he's doing is saying that the promises of God to deliver and his faithfulness is personal, it's powerful, and let me tell you to what extent that he's gonna be able to do it. It's the same thing that he promised to Abraham, the beginner of this whole tribe of people, what he's doing is saying, all the things you've heard about how God will deliver, it's that. It's not some version of that because he can't catch up anymore because it got away from him. I have some, all the people in my life tell me I need to start watching The Office because it's great. And they, they say, you'd really like it. Don't know what that means. But um, I started watching it every once in a while. I saw an episode a couple weeks ago. And there's this guy, Michael Scott. If you don't know, he's a boss. And he has the best intentions, but he's kind of aloof. If you're on staff at CBC, you don't know what that's like at all. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, that's one of those you're not supposed to laugh at people. Um, so he's kind of aloof, and I guess he wants the best in people, even though sometimes he can't deliver. He's middle management at a paper company, and so he probably you know doesn't do super well. And to a group of kids that are first, second grade, I forget, he makes a promise to him in this episode. He says, I'm going to pay for your college tuition when you graduate, right? Fast forward 12 years, they're graduating, and they've held true to this promise that this man made. And they think the world of this guy. They throw him a big party, like a big jubilee thing where they just praise him. They say, you've changed my life. You've changed everything about my life. I am so incredibly excited because you promised this. I can't believe how good this is. And they're lauding praise to him. The problem is he has no way to pay for their college. And he's sitting there and he says, guys, I have a confession to make. And this is a long episode where he kind of battles with, well, I don't need to tell them, right? They'll figure it out. Um, and he has a confession and he gets up there and he says, I, I can't pay for your college but I can pay for your laptop batteries for college, right? And, and it's simply that moment when they realize that what they were promised is not what they were getting. The point of this text when he says, hey, here's the God who delivers, here's the God who's faithful, here's the God who's personal, and here's what it's gonna be. All the things that you've heard, not a little bit of it, not, not some of it, all the things you've heard from when? From the beginning, from, from Abraham. That's the power of God's faithfulness to deliver. He says, you've heard about it from your ancestors for thousands of years. All of it's going to become a reality. That's big. That's mighty and monstrous. And he said, from all the things that you've heard, that has been prophesied through all the Old Testament saints, is my version of, one of the, uh, verse 70. And what he means by that is, he says, if you want more credibility in God, what he says is literally, look at all the prophecies of Christ. One of my favorite things to do is to look at the Old Testament prophecies because I think primarily the point of prophecies in the Old Testament, we can get caught up in, in Revelation, but I think primarily the point of prophecies is to build confidence in the people of God, right? And so if you look at all the ways that people talked about Jesus coming, or they didn't know it was Jesus, the Messiah coming, there's roughly 300 prophecies about Christ in general in the Old Testament, um, and a good number of those are about his birth narrative, about the Messiah, about what we're talking about here. So I like numbers. I'm a stat guy. There was um, a, uh, a math prof at a college in California, and he got together with IVF, uh, Christian ministry there, and he looked at eight specific prophecies of the birth narrative of Jesus, just eight. There's more than that. He looked at eight, you know, virgin birth, town of Bethlehem, from Judah, all those things, tribe of David, like those things. And he said, I'm gonna look at the likelihood that these eight would come true all together, that these eight prophecies would actually happen all together. And he said, if these eight, just these eight were to all come true, the likelihood of them was one to the, one in 10 to the 17th power, 
right? That's 17 zeros behind that. Just to give you some context, if, if you want to become president of the United States of America, if we just do rudimentary math, right? That means we take all the Americans since 1776 and we take all of our presidents and divide. You get about a one in 14 million shot of doing that, right? If, if you would like to get struck by lightning, it's about one in every 700,000, about one out of every two million people die from lightning strikes, so you're pretty safe, okay? Um, if you want your house to get hit by a meteorite, that's one in 870 trillion, I believe it is. That's one in 10 to the 12th power. We're talking one in 10 to the 17th power, right? Way worse odds. So this guy does some math. He says, he said, let's try to visualize this chance. He says, supposedly, um, we take 10 to the 17 silver dollars and lay them down on the face of Texas. They'll cover the whole state two feet deep. Texas is big, y'all, right? <laughs> two feet, I think the first time I've said y'all in a sermon, two feet deep. He said, now imagine you get a blindfolded man and you mark one of them and you throw it in somewhere over the state. You get a blindfolded man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this would be the right one that you marked. The chance of him getting the right one is the chance of one in 10 to the 17th power, right? This amazing confidence we have that not only is God faithful, but he's faithful to deliver powerfully, personally, and all the ways that he said he would. And we've seen some of that come true already. It builds confidence in the people of God when we're faced with the tension of, is God still faithful to us? Then he's going to say in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. And here's what's good about this text is the laudatory nature of what Zacharias is saying about God. The hard part is he, come from, he came from a place of really serious doubt. Really, really serious doubt. And it's really difficult in silence in places when we feel like God isn't faithful. Is it when nobody speaks into our doubts, our doubts grow. They just grow. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. And what I love about this text, Zechariah is trying to speak into the doubt that he had, that probably his fellow Israelites have, because they haven't seen God work in a very, very long time. If you guys follow, let's do another football reference. Let me follow the Cowboys. I do. Um, and this week, Jason Garrett, uh, the ginger, as I like to refer to him, the ginger got the team together. And there's a problem in Cowboy land. We've lost almost all the games now, and it just looks worse and worse each week. So he tried a new strategy this week. <laughs> he got together, and he put together a compilation of all their best plays and showed them to the team. He had to reach back to mid-90s, by the way. But he, uh, he, uh, put <laughs> he had to put together uh, a compilation of of some really good plays of the team from all the different games this season and last season and just showed them, you know, I don't know, 10 or 20 minutes, plays of them bawling out in beautiful ways. And they asked Jason Garrett, the ginger, they said, why did you show your team plays that they made like weeks and weeks ago? And he said, because they needed to be reminded that they could do it. We have a confidence problem. So what Zacharias is doing is saying, let me, in my prayer, praise to God. Now that my kid is eight days old and sitting next to me, let me tell you about how good God is. Here is what the awe of faithfulness brings. The awe of faithfulness brings confidence to the people of God because that's what's lost when you forget that God is faithful. You forget it. And so he's saying to his people, remember that God is good and will deliver because he is faithful. And when you feel like you can't have confidence in God because he's silent, have confidence. Because let me tell you about his deliverance. It's personal and it's powerful and it's everything you expect it to be. Darrell Bach is a prophet DTS and he said sometimes we're deprived of something because God has better things awaiting us down the road. When we wait patiently on the Lord, he often gives us more than we imagined possible. Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a child. What they got was a prophet. And so the first part of our text this morning, the first part of our prayer deals with the confidence that comes from the awe of faithfulness, but that's not where Zechariah's story ended. Because here's something we have to recognize as a people is so often we teach that you're either doubtful or you're confident, right? That I either believe or I don't believe. And it's, it's a binary proposition. It's all the way one or all the way the other. I don't know how you guys live your Christian life, but I know in mine that's rarely the case. I know in mine there's a mix all the time of doubt and confidence in God. I know in mine, some days I wake up and I say, I really need this to be true. And some days I wake up and I feel like I know that it's true. Zechariah is the same way. We teach you're either fully confident or you're fully not. And that switch is flipped like a light, but it wasn't even for Zacharias. He dealt with doubt and security in God. 
So when the angel first appeared to him back in the narrative, this angel said, I'm going to tell you that God is giving you a kid. It's going to bring great joy. And it's an angel, and he's in this place that nobody else should be, and neither of them are dead. So you know something's right in this moment. And Zacharias doesn't look at this angel and say, I'm fully confident now. All my doubts have gone away. He looks at this angel and said, I have a question. How can I be sure of this? He says, for I'm an old man, and my wife is really old as well. That's how we knew she wasn't there. (laughs) He looks at his angel and says, how can I be sure of this? I'm not young. She's not young. What he's doubting is God's capacity to be faithful to deliver because he hasn't seen it happen before. What we deal with is a man that just as God shows up, doesn't shed all his doubts, he's processing through them. Daryl Bach goes on to say, sometimes even good people have doubts about God's promise. Another commentator said, even a righteous man can pray with no sense of expectation. Here's why I think this is really important. Because Zechariah spent the next nine months silent, if you know the story. The angel said, because of your disbelief, you're not going to be able to speak for a while. And that really, in my opinion, turned out to be a grace of God because he had nothing to do but sit and ponder the faithfulness of God that God showed up to read and remember that God had been faithful. He couldn't tell the story over and over again because he had to sit and remember that God is a faithful, personal, mighty, powerful God that is faithful to deliver. But I think it's really important because so often we think either I believe or I don't. Either I doubt or I don't. And if I doubt, it's bad. I, I don't know if that's true. I think it's this interplay of doubt and faithfulness. And, and, and as we tell the story of God's faithfulness, hopefully it scares away the doubt, but it doesn't mean that that happens quickly and it doesn't mean that happens all the way. And that's okay. Because what we see in the story is God used Zacharias' doubt to show people that he was working. You see it in um, verse 22. He said he came out, he wasn't able to speak. They realized that he had seen a vision of the holy place because he was making signs to them and remained unable to speak. These people hadn't seen God, hadn't heard God, hadn't seen God speak in somebody else's life that heard from God. They had no clue what God's speaking would look like. He walked out in the middle of doubt, and I think God used that to inspire confidence in others around him. There's a podcast I've recommended a dozen times. It's called Lost and Found, and there's two guys um, at the very beginning of this that, that started the podcast, a guy named Michael Gungor, who's a worship leader and a Christian artist, and another guy that I just know, his name is Science Mike. And um, they're both devoutly Christian men growing up. Science Mike um, was a deacon in his church, and Gungor was a worship leader, and they both talk about this growing doubt that they had, that they feel like they couldn't talk about with anybody else because they were like, you know, important people in churches. And he said, one day we couldn't do it anymore. And Gunger got on stage as he's leading worship and he, he said to the people that he's leading worship, I don't know if I believe this anymore. Uh, not a great place to do that. <laughs> um, Science Mike said, over time I realized that I didn't believe in the Jesus narrative anymore. And, and what the, they have a, a really long couple episodes where they talk about their faith journey and how they found their way back to God. And, and why I've recommended this is because so often we bury and hide the doubt that we have instead of letting God use our doubt to inspire confidence in others. And as I've recommended that to people, they've listened and they've remembered and hopefully, hopefully God has stirred confidence in their souls about his faithfulness from the doubt of others. So often as Christians, we feel like if we have any doubt, we have nothing to bring to the table and serve God. And I want to say that's just not true. <laughs> I, w- I want to say that's not true because I believe in a God who's bigger than my doubt and can use even my doubt for his glory. I see it in the story of Zacharias. I see it. So he had 10 months to sit with his doubt, to process through things. He had 10 months to, to try and figure out, nine, 10 months to try and figure out kind of what God was speaking. And at this point, when the kid's finally born, he realizes all the things that God says, and this is where the blessing comes from. One of my favorite moments in this story is at first he didn't believe that God could do, and so he says, you're gonna have a kid, you're gonna name him John. He's like, I don't know about that. And then you get to the moment where he's actually supposed to live this out, and it's in verse 60, really 59 to 63, 64. And what happens in the first century world is on the eighth day, the dad named the kid. And the name of the kid was always the name of the father for the, for the most part. They had family names. Because again, corporate culture, your kid didn't get to weigh in. He wasn't really an individual yet. He was a member of the family. Family matters. So in the text, you see all these people asking Zacharias, hey, what is your kid's name? It's Zacharias, right? Zacharias, you're naming your kid Zacharias. And in verse 63, he says, Zacharias asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Amazed. 
So what we had was this man that doubted God, that even though he served God, didn't believe God when he said to show up. Fast forward to him focusing and meditating on the confidence of God. And as we recognize the confidence of God from being blown away by the awe of God's faithfulness, it inspires confidence in not just our ability to understand and believe in God's deliverance, but it inspires confidence in our service. So he says, yeah, I'm gonna believe in this and live out the confidence I know to be true. So go back to his prayer. In verse 75, he shifts a little bit. He says, this is the God who delivers, and this is what it looks like. He says that we may, sorry, verse 74, that we may, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, may serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness for him as long as we will live. In, in the Greek, that phrase, serve him without fear, is at the beginning of the sentence for some emphasis. The point is that I have so much confidence in God that it completely shifts and changes my action. My confidence in God leads towards service to God that points back to his deliverance and his faithfulness. So as we look at the awe of God's faithfulness, we get a picture of the gravity of his deliverance as we meditate on a God that is faithful and our confidence grows, it leads towards service. It did for Zacharias, it does for us. It leads towards unabashed service without fear. That's a beautiful place to be. I go back to what we studied in the summer at CBC. We did a Daniel series. There's a couple stories of men who almost lost their lives and their lives are in the balance and they say, I'm gonna serve God. I'm gonna serve God because I trust in God. I'm gonna serve God because he's bigger than this situation. I'm going to serve God with confidence because I know that even though you're threatening my life and it looks like you can take it at will, even though it looks like that I trust in a God who can and will deliver now or the next phase of this life. I trust in God. And so you have people that stand up and serve God without fear in the midst of circumstances where it looks like they should be incredibly fearful. So Zechariah says, my confidence in God leads me to serve God righteously. And then he ends by saying, and this is what else our confidence does that we find when we take awe of how good God is. It says literally in our text, um, in verses 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of God, because of our uh, God's tender mercy, the dawn will break upon us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What I love about this story is <laughs> that Zechariah had been silent for nine-ish months, give or take nine, ten. He'd been silent, completely silent. What we see and what we read are his very first words. It says in the actual story that once he wrote down the name John, his mouth immediately opened and he started proclaiming the goodness of God. These are the first words he speaks when he's allowed to speak again. And it isn't, man, I gotta tell you something that happened nine months ago. It isn't, hey, Elizabeth, you did this thing like six months ago, really getting on my nerves. It isn't any of those things. It's let me tell you about how good God is because I've had nothing to do but think about it. And it's more than just knowing. It's more than just serving. It's proclaiming. And he shifts focus from this is what God will do to this is what my son will do. He's going to go before and prepare the way for the Messiah who's going to come and save, forgive sins, put light in dark places. There was a Pew Research poll that I found this morning. Actually, I was reading through some news articles and 587 is a um, kind of a think tank and a research group and they came out and said that for the first time in the history of this country, in a long time at least, um, millennials, so 25-ish to 38-ish, give or take, they said they're more likely to be, or just as likely to be unaffiliated with any kind of belief system than to be affiliated with it. And they have no desire to be affiliated with anything of religion, and, and primarily Christianity, you know? I come to this text, and I... Look at the awe of God's faithfulness that inspires things in me, that brings confidence, that brings service, that brings proclamation. And, and I wonder if nobody tells them, who will? I wonder if my ability to proclaim about God's goodness is tied into my confidence in God's goodness. Because John the Baptist's job was to go before people and say, let me tell you about this thing that I know. And I can't help but proclaim it because it's that good and because I have that much confidence in the faithfulness of my God. In the middle of the good days and the bad days, the good months and the bad months, they get up in front of people and they say, I can't help but tell you. It's like any first-time parent who can't stop talking about their kid that doesn't do anything yet, you know? In this moment where we see a holistic picture 
of what the awe of God's faithfulness gives us. It gives us confidence in his ability to deliver. It gives us confidence in our ability to serve. And it gives us confidence as it provokes us, as it incites us, as it pushes us to proclaim the goodness of God. And that's what we do each and every time we talk about God's faithfulness. Because just like doubt grows in silence, confidence grows when we share the stories of God's faithfulness. As a church, that's what we want to be and what we want to do together. So this Christmas season is all about to push past the narrative of presents and, and trees, which are all really, really great things, and to say, hey, but this points to a greater good of a God who came to save, who is saving, who will save, and is worthy of all the things that we do. So us proclaiming that God is good and preparing the way so that people might see Jesus because we're that confident in who our God is because he's always been faithful. As we end today, I just kind of want to read his words one last time because it was good, man. So when he realized that God was faithful, when God's faithfulness came to fruition in his life, these are the words of the first time Father Zacharias. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he's come to help and he's redeemed his people. For he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from long ago, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He has done this to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham. This oath grants that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, may serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him as long as we live. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's tender mercy, the dawn will break upon from high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful that you're faithful. I'm thankful that one of the jobs of the church of God is to surround the people of God and not the people of God and tell stories of your faithfulness so that our confidence might grow. Because when we marvel at a God who always shows up, who always delivers, who does it personally and mightily, when we marvel at that God, we can't help but grow our confidence in who you are and what you're doing, even if we don't see it. May we be confidence carriers (laughs) as we go and live out the story of Jesus, as we serve faithfully. May we point people back to a God who always shows up and might we be in awe of your faithfulness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.